from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. My name is John Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. And according to my guests, economists Dr. Robin Goldstein and Professor Daniel Sumner, the legal weed business presents an economic conundrum. While nearly 40% of Americans can walk into a dispensary and purchase weed legally, many still will buy it illegally. Why is that? In their new book, Can Legal Weed Win? The Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics, Dr. Goldstein and Sumner draw on a wealth of economic data and their experience working with the industry and cannabis regulators to explain why many weed businesses and some aspects of legalization fail to measure up and drive consumers to the illegal market. Dr. Goldstein is an economist and author of The Wine Trials. He is director of the Cannabis Economics Group in the Department of Agriculture and Resources Economics at the University of California, Davis. And Sumner is a Frank H. Buck Jr. Distinguished Professor of Agriculture and Resource Economics at the University of California, Davis. Both very, very qualified to talk about this topic. Thank you for joining me on the podcast. Thanks, Jonathan. Thank you, Jonathan. So why do such distinguished academics of yourself decide to write a book about weed? Uh, three reasons. One, uh, it's really interesting economics. Two, it's a lot of fun. And, and three, it's actually an important industry. So if you're going to do economics on important stuff, this is one of the things. And is we got involved in this six, seven years ago, maybe a little more in a pretty thoroughgoing way, working with the Bureau of Cannabis Control. It was named something else back then now the Department of Cannabis Control here in California. But our scope has always been national and, and really international. And when we were asked, to, can you help us devise regulations in California that are perhaps less bad than they might otherwise be? And, <laughs> and they're pretty bad. Phrasing. <laughs> yeah. But that's basically what it was. The regulators knew that they were stuck. There were all kinds of things written into the law that they couldn't change. Can you help us? Uh, any applied economists posed with that question would say, you bet. And it's a, it's a very unusual corner of economics, partly just because there's not much data out there. You know, when you have an industry that's been completely illegal, you can't go to these government sources and look at historical prices and quantities and the stuff that we usually rely on to understand industries. So you have to get creative in how you're collecting data. And we've been doing, for example, we've been collecting lots of retail prices on, uh, online, different online sources and have a whole team of people working on that. And then it's also just changing really fast. So we were, you know, every time we, we publish something or we come up with a result, it's think chances are things are going to have developed, you know, by the time someone reads it, it's, it's already changing. So we're, we're, uh, it's fun trying to keep up with, with all the rapid changes that are happening across the country and learning more every day. So let's, let's lay out the problem here for legal weed. What is the sort of, I mean, the whole book is really about the problem and how to fix the problem, but can you lay it out sort of in simple terms? What is the problem with legal weed now? What, what, why is the industry struggling uh, so much and, and, and having such a problem with the illicit market? Here's the way I like to frame it, Jonathan. Let's say you're a producer and you're vaguely illegal. It's 2015 in California. And that, yeah, there's this medicinal system, but there's no regulations and most of the weed coming in the back door of a fairly legal dispensary, you know, who knows where it really came from? Okay. And now the government said to you as a grower and supplier in the wholesale market, or maybe even a retailer, here's the proposition. Uh, you can open a store in the mall, give us all your, all your information about yourself. And in a couple of years, if you're lucky, you'll have and a million or $2 later hiring consultants and other people to help you get through the maze that we've created. 
uh, you will probably get a license and you will offer to your customers uh, who you've never met now. So you've given up all the customers you used to have. These new people, you will say, here's my products. They now meet a bunch of government regulations and they cost twice as much. And the business who's been in business for a while says, well, maybe not. And then the customers of that business, and in places, whether it's Colorado or California, or for that matter, Oklahoma or, or Mississippi, there's a lot of people using weed. And they've been doing it for a while. They've been getting it from a guy who's kind of vaguely a guy they don't necessarily trust. But, you know, they've been buying weed from them, and it's okay. And particularly, as one of your guests said recently, particular, particularly flour. Okay. And now that customer says, gee, I can now abandon the guy I've been buying it from because he didn't jump into this legal business. And I can buy it from two guys with suits, uh, one of whom happens to have an Harvard MBA, which really impresses me a lot when I'm buying weed. And I'll go down to the mall and pay twice as much. Well, first of all, where the hell is the mall? Because it's not really in my neighborhood, actually. <laughs> and, and at that point, you got the buyer, you got the seller, and they're both shrugging their shoulders saying, what the hell, why would I do this? So the other way of asking the question is, why is there 25 or 30% of sales in a lot of places, and maybe slightly above that some places? Why does that much actually go to the legal market? And if you frame there, what does the legal market have to offer that's appealing, not just to a few of us, but to a mass market? And that's a, that's a real challenge, I think, for the legal business. So it seems to me that the core problem is the sort of over-regulation of the legal weed business, all the hoops that people have to jump through, not only the sellers, but also the buyers to find it. The buyers, you know, it's tough to find. It's more expensive. And then on the, the seller's side, it's, I mean, who has the money and the resources to deal with all these regulations when they might be able to just get it in the black market for half the amount of money and it's just a lot easier. I mean, it seems like an intractable problem that we have set up here. You know, in our book, and uh, we call our book, Can Legal Weed Win? And uh, the answer is not simply no or yes. It's, well, there's ways of doing it where where the where we think the legal weed segment can compete successfully with illegal weed. No state in America yet has quite figured it out. But we give examples of things that some states have done differently from others uh, that could help the legal segment be viable and, and have it be a thriving industry with economic benefits and tax benefits of state and everything people were hoping to get out of this legal legalization and the legal industry. Some of the examples are just that over time, after eight or 10 years being legal, prices come down and as companies figure out how to produce more uh, efficiently, you know, wholesale prices have come way down, especially in Colorado and Washington, who've been doing it for the longest, there you're seeing uh, retail prices also coming down to points that are not quite as cheap as illegal, but much more competitive than they are in a state like California or Massachusetts that, are, that have been doing it for less time, but also that have made it more costly in terms of barriers to barriers and licensing fees and, and, and taxes and regulations. We also talk about the example of Oklahoma, which is a state that's only medical at the moment, but they've still figured out how to have a really viable Legal weed, biz, uh, legal weed industry there. So they have significantly more dispensaries or retail shops selling legal weed, legal regulated and taxed weed. They have uh, several times more than California, even though they're one-tenth the size of California in terms of population. And so they've, and, and what they did was, you know, this was a state that's very conservative, you know, historically and has had a lot, there was a lot of objection to legalizing there for moral reasons and so forth. This is a dangerous drug. You know, there was a, there was that idea in, in Oklahoma, probably more than California, other states. But then once they're also this pro-business state. So once they decided to do it, they're like, we're going to do it in a pro-business way and, and let these businesses succeed. So it's an interesting example where they made the licensing, they made the licensing uh, uh, process 
so simple. And then they also sped up and the process of implementing their their laws so that they, the morning after they legalized, there was already shops open, ready for business. And now they're all over the state. Um, and so, uh, and we, so we talk about examples of, of relative successes, relative failures and everything in between and, and, and talk about there's a lot of states that are still not legal in any way yet and still trying to figure out how to think about it. And it's really valuable to look at lots of different states, not just one and compare. Right. You were comparing. I know that you looked at Vermont in contrast to Oklahoma. It's like sort of the opposite it's a disaster. It's sort of a disaster, right? The, the, the cannabis has been legal there for years and they've really haven't even really started their business yet. What is happening there that's so different than what Oklahoma did? Well, they've just taken forever to write the rules. Sorry, go ahead, Dan. Well, yeah. And, and it's, uh, you know, you said over-regulation, Jonathan, and, and that's a word, uh, you know, we, we use fairly loosely occasionally. Every one of these regulations has a proponent who thinks it's a really good idea. And let's take one that nobody would disagree with. Let's talk about social equity. Uh, who's against social equity? Everybody's for it. And are there disadvantages? You know, there are people that have been uh, uh, individuals that have been incarcerated, for example, for weed, where we now look back and say, you know, that was just not right. You know, it's and it's been really hard on uh, particular communities where it's race or ethnicity or neighborhoods or whatever. And you say, let's give those folks a leg up. Well, that's a set of regulations and there will be, I guarantee you, because I know in California, but also New York now, there'll be elaborate sets of regulations in your application process. So you better get yourself a consultant to show that you can meet certain criteria or you don't meet those criteria, in which case you wait. And part of the problem is then you have somebody who says, gee, I got a million bucks. I'm not socially a disadvantage. So I need to find a guy, but I can't, I can never get a license because we got to go through the year and a half of sorting people who are socially disadvantaged because that's the right thing to do. So gee, I'll find somebody to be the front guy for me who's socially disadvantaged. Well, or maybe, or maybe not, maybe it's legit. Maybe it's not, maybe it's two real partners. Maybe it's phony. Well, now the regulations have to be more complicated because you got to sort those out because you don't want to abuse and on and on. Great regulation, great idea. Three years later, we still haven't opened any stores because we're trying to figure out who meets it's, the regulation. It's like in trying to fix a problem, you're just making a, a larger problem. Similarly, yeah. with the with the testing, there's all kinds of variation how tightly you test things. I like to say here in California, cannabis is more uh, tightly regulated than organic kale or parsley or something, and I think that's really the case. There, as in anything, there's got to be somebody cheating somewhere, but it's hard to cheat. Okay, but it's not free. And traditional cannabis growers who were using really nasty stuff, a lot of them, well, they don't, you know, that now that's a real problem. Here, grow your cannabis, but don't use the materials you've been using. And in fact, don't use even stuff that's legal on all the vegetables in your county. You can't even use any of them. And then guys say, well, gee, I thought I knew how to grow cannabis, but now you're telling me, I mean, you got problems with humidity or you got problems with mold. What do I do about it? Well, you lose your crop. Sorry, that's the way farming works sometimes. And so it's a challenge, even all the way back to thinking about purity of the product. And purity of the product is one of the things that legal has going for it. So if you ask some buyers, why are you paying twice as much down at the mall when you actually know a guy? And they say, well, yeah, but that guy doesn't really know who he's buying from. So you know, I'd rather have this purity stuff. And besides, I'm rich. <laughs> you know, it always has to be common. Besides, I got the money. Because if you don't got the money, you, that doesn't count. So every one of these regulations probably has somebody, almost every one of these regulations has somebody 
who had a reasonably good idea. Robin's favorite regulation is the one that makes cannabis stores close at 10 o'clock in California. And you say, really? Yeah. That's an ex- that seems to be an exception to rule that there's some logic behind every rule. Because, I mean, you could, okay, you could imagine a public safety rationale there. Oh, we don't want cannabis on the streets being sold. We don't want drugs being sold after 10 p.m. So what happens? Instead, it's only illegal drugs being sold after 10 p.m. And that's supposed to be better. Haven't we learned anything from prohibition? It just makes it, yeah, it just it just makes it worse. So what, what there's things that we still have a chance here, right? Because as I said in the top of the show, only 40% of the country can enjoy legal weed. And then we have these states like New York, New Jersey that are just getting into the, the recreational market. And I feel like those states, it may be too late, but maybe they can learn something from the mistakes made in California, the mistakes made in some of the earlier states that got into the recreational market. What do you think? I mean, if you're you're a politician in California, and I mean, in New York, and again, you want to do the right thing. You want social equity. You want safe weed, but you also want like a thriving market. What do you do? I mean, I know you guys aren't politicians, and but you consult them. Yeah, <laughs> you, you play one on TV. You say, man, this is. Uh, <laughs> I'll, just, I'll take an insult just so much. You know. <laughs> I think one thing is don't try to get greedy on behalf of the state and thinking that. I think there's a lot of people that make the mistake, kind of in a good faith effort to collect as much tax money as possible for the state, and they don't think about the fact that there's a trade-off between having a viable industry and and collecting tax money. So it could be that it could be that you raise you raise the taxes and you do collect a little bit more money, but in return, you know, you get a much bigger illegal industry and you have a lot of people losing their their money in your state and investors and entrepreneurs and those people and that's not in the interest of the state and it's also not in the interest of being I think in the longer term being popular as a politician or as a government because people want things to work that you set up. So taxes, that's number one, taxes. Setting the tax rates too high and piling these different levels of local, setting up systems where you have a a state tax or two different state taxes and you pile local taxes up and everyone wants their piece of the pie. But when all is said and done, you end up with such a high multiple of what the consumer ends up paying that no one wins. And, yeah, so and, on, on, on taxes, uh, Jonathan, Robin was really highlighting the idea that you lay on taxes at four or five or six different places. So you've got your license fees. Okay, we got to have license fees. And then on top of that, you have your, your excise taxes at the state level, and then you have your normal sales taxes, but you put a cultivation tax because we may as well tax the farmers as well. And then, of course, to operate, you got to operate somewhere. And so the local county puts on their tax because, after all, they ought to get a piece of the pie. And then the city puts on their tax and they put it on cultivators and they put it on retailers. And then somebody says, well, all the cannabis businesses ought to pay a tax. So you put a special uh, tax on the labs and the wholesalers as well. And at the end of this thing, you say, we don't even know what the hell. And of course, remember paying taxes, it, at least for some of us, isn't that much fun. I really, I enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, you and me, we're exceptional. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I can't wait. Can't wait for uh, April 15th. Uh, but just the business of trying to comply. I would emphasize even more than Robin does the regulatory side of it, though, because that's not collecting any taxes. That's costing everybody. And just First, do no harm with regulations. You know, first, think them all the way through. Is it, do I really got to do it? Because there's enough regulations in the end. And I know what happened in California, people who like regulations in general and like the idea of the government being in charge of stuff. It's just their way of looking at things. I will like big government is, a, is sort of an attitude some places. And then they said, oh, now we have this new industry. So every regulation we ever had in our dreams 
the sort of regulations we wish we could have put on broccoli, every one of those is going to go on cannabis. The problem is, and maybe on broccoli, you could get away with it because there isn't a huge illegal broccoli industry out there. But on cannabis, you do this side by side with these guys that are, you know, raising their metal finger at you when it comes to regulations. You are just shackling this potentially vibrant legal industry with more and more stuff. And I think of the the taxes as almost an insult on top of the injury. The injury's already been done and the taxes just sort of insult you on top of that. And the more as a, if I was sitting there in New Jersey advising the government, I'd say, I know you want to do this. I know you're just, you just can't wait, but think it all the way through. You are particularly given that there's a whole bunch of people who you are not going to get to regulate and admit it right now. Say it out loud to yourself. There's a bunch of people that I'm just not going to be able to grab. And I don't, in one sense, I don't even want to, because you say, gee, do we want to go back to the days we're arresting people on the street for really minor cannabis offenses. You know, some some guy who's literally on the corner with where an overcoat full of baggies selling it at, at you know 20 bucks a baggie to people who, who are on the street. Do we really want to throw that guy in jail for a long time? And the answer is we probably don't. So now what do we do? And that's a real challenge, but it 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 means you know let the legal industry compete. If you decide to go that route, let it compete. So I'm hearing regulation and taxes. And then you had mentioned just the overcomplication of the sort of social equity systems, which come in with the right intentions, obviously, but make it so complicated. And the same with environmental rules and the same with local zoning rules and all the way down the line. My worst, the worst I think of all of these are well-intentioned city councilors. Let's assume they're not corrupt. That's another problem because we know some are. There's always going to be corruption somewhere. But let's take the well-intentioned city council who says, well, uh, but we don't want to be overrun with weed in our town like they're not already. You know, I mean, come on. And so therefore, we'll only award three licenses for retail stores. In California, you can't control the, the delivery, but a lot of places they've eliminated legal delivery. So we'll only let three uh, stores in our town, even though the state has no quota, we'll put one in our town. But who's going to get those licenses? Well, first of all, there's a guy who's somebody's brother-in-law. He's a good guy. He knows something. Okay, so he'll get one of them. And then what are, who are the other two? They're, they're upstanding citizens, et cetera, or they're, they make all kinds of extra statements they'll make about social equity or other things, or they coach the little league team, whatever. But anyway, they're, they somehow get at the top of the line. But then now you've only got three stores in town. That's market power, and they get to raise their prices a little bit. Meanwhile, everybody in the illegal business says, thank you very much. Really appreciate that. That was, that was great. Uh, we're all for limiting the competition. Rob, you spent a lot of time looking at the wine industry in your previous book. Is there anything that the cannabis industry, sometimes the cannabis industry and the wine industry get compared because you're, you're both growing crops and and I don't know if it's a fair comparison, but I hear, I hear that comparison a lot. And, and a lot of people in the cannabis industry have a fantasy that one day cannabis will be like the wine industry in terms of, you know, the way the way it's branded, the way it's accepted in the in the overall population, they they talk about cannabis soccer moms or. But is there something that the wine industry learned that they're getting right that the cannabis industry could borrow from? Like, are there examples of other industries that are faced with similar problems or challenges that that kind of get it right? You can buy wine, and you don't have to buy wine on the black market. I mean, some people might do that. I know a French guy who can deliver a bottle of Bordeaux for a dollar. <laughs> You know, but you know, there's not a black market for wine. Yeah, there was a big one after prohibition. So 
the big advantage the cannabis the industry the wine industry has is it's had 90 years since the repeal of prohibition to figure it out and there was a long period of time when there was a a big illegal market competing side by side with the legal market. Actually, one fun fact that not many people know is actually wine was legal or alcohol was legal during prohibition or um, during U.S. prohibition from 1920 to 1933 if you had a doctor's prescription. So they had medical alcohol, just like we had medical weed. You could go into a, a pharmacy, a Walgreens. And this is one of the reasons Walgreens first got big in the Chicago area during prohibition. They went from 25 stores to more than 600. Uh, you could go in there with your doctor's note saying, give this guy a bottle of whiskey, give you the whiskey. I don't know if they, back in the, that day, they had those stamps with your name on it and everything, but it was a medical whiskey. And the way that wine and other, and spirits and beer got regulated after prohibition was to set up what's called the three-tier system where you had discrimination between these different tiers. You had to have a distributor and a, and a producer and a, and a store. They couldn't be tied together. It was set up in a very complicated way and it remains very complicated today. So that's one thing that they definitely have in common. Another thing is that they're regulated differently in every state. And that's, that's a system that's uh, likely to continue for a long time with cannabis, even after we legalize it in some form nationally, which will happen sooner or later, there's still going to be a lot of differences between how you can make it, buy it, and sell it in different states. And so to some extent, um, you know, as businesses try to grow and get big and scale up, there's always going to be a lot more local issues in, in both of these industries. Dan, might, Dan who's, has actually done uh, a, a ton of work on wine too, so he might have something to add there as well. You know, Jonathan, the first thing we did when we started doing work with the Bureau of Cannabis Control, and they were just implementing, this is even before the proposition passed in 2016, we called it on a friend of ours, Jim Lapsley, who wrote a wonderful book called Bottled Poetry about the transition out of prohibition and into a high quality wine industry in the Napa Valley. And Jim wrote some essays with us, and he still works with us on these uh, parallel issues between the economic history of prohibition, which as Robin points out, wasn't nearly as smooth as it looks like uh, in the rearview mirror. So there are some parallels and there's some big differences. One of the parallels in the weed business is that uh, particularly growers would like to establish some measure of quality, say, associated with location. So they'd love to say, guys in Mendocino County would love to say, Mendocino, that's where the really good weed comes from. So you pay us extra to grow it there. Or Santa Barbara County, or for that matter, uh, Central Oregon, or you know, lots of places uh, here and there, uh, the uh, the Berkshires in Massachusetts. So, of course, everybody thinks their weed's going to be the best, and they'll win on that. This, of course, is not true. Uh, the other problem for weed, of course, is these days price of weed is mostly just a matter of THC. And as much as people romantically talk about all these things, there's really no real scientific evidence that people can really tell the difference. And that's a challenge for them. Although that's true with wine too. Yeah, that's right. Robin's done lots of studies uh, on that. Well, yeah, explain that in wine, right? So like you said, we were talking before we got on that people in your book, your other book, people will pay when you did blind taste tests, you know, people like the cheap, they actually preferred the cheaper wine, right? To the more expensive. Unless you show them the label. Yeah. So, so the ticket and, and labels are great. You know, let's just face it. I, I, I like to talk about my brother-in-law wine where I buy, I make sure I buy a wine that's well-known enough that my brother-in-law knows it's expensive so that he knows that I care about him and I respect him. Hey, he can't tell the difference. What the hell? But, but he, can really, he can look at a label. And if it says Napa, he says, good old Dan, he, he respects me. 
Yeah. Whereas if it said Fresno, he'd say, what the hell? With, with weed, I think where, where wine was 20, 30 years ago, there's, there's much less, there's much more knowledge about wine. You know, there are all these people out there now who are learning about the Appalachians and some people who take wine tasting courses and can start to develop more expensive taste, at least taste for the type of wine that's marketed in a certain way and that's, that gets high ratings in, in magazines. With weed, we're in the dark ages. There's, from a consumer perspective, people look at THC content, there's not, there's all these other cannabinoids and it's not clear that THC content is even a good representation of how high it gets you or certainly not how it makes you feel. There's sativa versus indica. This is like, you know, two of the THC percentage and sativa versus indica are two of the few things that consumers do turn, turn to on a weed label to say, here's uh, why, why I should choose this one or pay more for it. And uh, sativa versus indica turns out is is just what it's marketed as may have very little to do with the genetics. So what's what says it's sativa? There's no such thing as 100% sativa or 100% indica. This stuff is just all, it's all hybrid and it's uh, kind of arbitrarily labeled. And there's also not that much evidence that, uh, or any really, that sativa and indica are different in the way that people think they are. So there's a whole world of research to be done in the future. I hope a lot of people out there will, will try to do things like blind tastings. And it's obviously more complicated to do a blind tasting with weed than it is with wine, first of all, it doesn't take, it's, it's not, you can't uh, spit it out the way you can, uh, you can with wine. So, you know, you, you, you try one and then you're, I didn't you're, inhale. You're, 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 you might be, uh, it's true. I always it. wonder about the QA people in cannabis. Like, how do they do that? Like once you're high, you're high. Like you can't, yeah, you can't, it's, it's hard. <laughs> yeah. You gotta do like one a day, maybe. I, I don't know. So uh, the, you know, it's a real challenge and this doesn't require anybody being a crook. So the guy at the store will buy weed. The, the retailer buys weed that's labeled as sativa. The, the guy, the farmer buys seed labeled sativa. The guy that's growing seed bought some plants labeled as sativa. Nobody's doing these gene serious genetic tests or almost nobody. When they do, they find it's kind of random yeah. and, and not, and it doesn't really take a crook anywhere in the system. So we're not, we're not blaming anyone here. We're just saying the industry isn't there yet with serious research, which will come and more knowledge will come. And maybe on the basis of that, we'll get to the point where people will, will have a reliable sense of what's going to happen uh, when they use the product. And in which case, and maybe that'll be mostly in the legal system. And that may be something that'll help the legal industry compete against right. the illegal industry. And again, that's a maybe, but probably uh, years down the road. And terpenes too. It's like, I think there's a lot of chaotic information about terpenes and there's this idea they're using that. They're trying to use that as a marketing tool. You're seeing it mostly on the legal side, not on the illegal side. And uh, this terpene will make you feel this way or this way. And But yeah, it remains to be seen how much of that, if any, is true. But I think over time, the consumer awareness and experience and like just people taking stuff home, trying it themselves, learning the differences over time. Well, it's going to be a long process, but but that'll help. That'll help. It reduce the amount of bullshit in marketing. So I'm an entrepreneur listening to this. I don't work for a major, you know, MSO operator. What's is there any hope here? What what can I do to to ensure that my, you know, there's a lot of forces that are out of my control, right? Taxes, government regulations, uh, complicated um, compliance, etc. What can I do as a small business owner to survive in this industry? And we have some some suggestions of where the industry might be going, uh, the various parts of the industry. The first thing I'd say is um, be aware of all these complications that we're talking about. And we went through two or three years of a whole lot of either 
naive entrepreneurs or not fully informed, and then other people suckering who knew better, who were sucking other people's money, you know, and, and we've gone through that and we'll have waves of that. But open your eyes really wide. One thing that's true is when there's lots of complications, that does mean there's opportunities and there may be opportunities for doing things better Then, And remember, if you say to yourself, look, I'm going to compete in the legal business. I know that say 70% of the industry is going to be illegal in my state. That's, that's the way it's going to be. I'm not going to kind of try to compete there. Okay. Then think about where you are going to compete. That means you're your competitors are the other legal businesses and you got to do something that they're not doing or something that they're better than they're doing. But, you know, it's so complicated. There are these opportunities. One way to do that is to try to figure out a way to get through the legal maze more efficiently than some people, recognizing that there may be scale economies there, that it's going to cost me a million bucks to get through the legal way, maze, whether I'm going for a big license or a little license. So I may as well go big. That takes cap. But it's not all capital. You know, I, I may have, I may know my neighborhood or my town better than the average person. And I'm not supporting somebody whose job, at a, who gave up his job at the dot com at a half a million bucks a year, who thinks he has to extract a half a million bucks a year out of the business starting on year one. And so there are opportunities, I think, here. And, but it takes realizing where the problems are. And it's not just, hey, I know how to grow weed. So therefore I can make it like anything else. And I work with lots of farmers in every industry and there's plenty of people who know how to grow crops that are belly up because you got to know how to grow crops and know how to run a business, put the two together. It's a, it's a much smaller set. Yep. A couple of things to add to that. Um, Jonathan, uh, one, one thing I think is, is super for uh, important for entrepreneurs is patience and more patience than you can, than you probably imagine you'll need to have when you first get into it. And that's to say that things a can and will, improve and get better over time and, and get sorted out, including things like regulations over time in general, move toward a more man, in a more manageable direction. They, you see that in Colorado and Washington, where they, uh, they've had the longest time to get uh, used to this, this system and fix, fix little things in it. Patience also means being really well capitalized because it means having working capital enough to, to put up with undershooting estimates or projections of revenues over, over time or, or things like really long waiting periods for licensing licenses. The number one reason I've seen more people go out of business in this industry than any other is just they ran out of money while, but before they even got off the ground. That's a source of, I think, I, I don't have this, uh, I don't want to cite this as a fact, but anecdotally, I would say that seems to be a, an even bigger reason for failure uh, than any other. I think being on the cutting edge of technology is, is important. There's lots of really cool solutions that are coming out every day. I think like keeping up on what's the latest technology, there's just not like other agricultural industries where there's been 50 years or hundreds of years of, of, of technology that everyone uses the same kind of stuff. So people are innovating with new kinds of any software and new kinds of machinery. And, and, and there's, there's really advantages to, for competitive, really competitive advantages that you, where you can save lots of money or even just like something like having the best software to integrate with the track and trace system can save you lots of labor costs. And one final thing I'd add is I think a lot of the weed brands have kind of branded themselves in this way that looks really like high-end Silicon Valley design. And it, it kind of doesn't have this weed vibe to it. And I think that consumers are uh, over time, I think maybe interested in more folksy kind of feeling to some of these products and not having every store look like a Apple store. And you can imagine stores that look like Apple stores and they'll do fine and stores that look yeah. like, uh, you know, uh, Bart's Buzzy Bees or something. There's room for lots of people in knowing for sure. 
what town you're in uh, yeah. matters. That's this your customers. Yeah. When I was listening to Robin talk, I was agreeing with everything he was saying. And, and then I was thinking, you know, I don't want to be on the cutting edges technology. I want to be just behind that. Cause, cause the guy that does it, you never know where the cutting edge really is. So I'll let, I'll let somebody make the mistakes first and then I'll be right behind them. You know, <laughs> I want to be second. It's like when you don't want to buy an iPhone and when the new iPhone comes out, you want to wait, right? Like uh, to the second generation. Yeah. You know, so you, you think of the marathon runner that runs just behind the leader all the way to the end and then yeah. sprints through and wins we're number or something two. like that. We're you know? number you two. Don't be the, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You don't want to be the first one to try out some. Yeah. Some new device. Yeah. Well, uh, Robin Goldstein, Daniel Summer, this has been so interesting. The book is called Can Legal Weed Win? The Blunt Realities of Cannabis Economics. You can find it where? You can find it on Amazon. You can find it anywhere, right? It's a great read. And thanks. I, we'll bring you back hopefully soon to talk about other uh, insights that you have. I could talk to you guys for hours. Love to. Uh, fun, it was a lot of fun, Thank Jonathan. You. We'll talk to you again. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for listening to the podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, head on over to greenentrepreneur.com for the latest cannabis and CBD news, thoughtful essays, tips, and insider tricks on how to succeed in the cannabis business, all that good stuff. And hey, if you like this podcast, do me a huge solid and go to wherever you may listen to your podcast and please rate and review our podcast. It does wonders for the algorithm, helps others find the podcast. Would so appreciate a review and a rating. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next week.